Okay, so basically, you've probably seen the movie, so I'm going to set this up. It's not as cool as watching the clip, but technology has... I think Satan lives in all technology. Like, he's in the wires and stuff. And if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. But basically, he calls them out there, and he, they run to the, the battlefield of Gettysburg. And they're standing on a place where brother fought brother and killed one another because they, they couldn't get along. And, and basically what Paul's going to say is, is if we don't fight for community, we will kill one another and it will be to our ruin. And Paul's making a big deal about this. Check out Ephesians chapter 4. And um, I'm going to be pretty, uh, I'm not going to be mean tonight. I'm just going to be very forward because Paul is very forward in his text. And here's what he says. Look at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So here's what Paul does. He starts out and he reminds him again. Remember last week he said, I'm suffering, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Why would he say that again? Here's why I think he would say it again. Because when someone comes to me, if someone were to walk in this room and say, Hey, I've, I've just gotten out of prison. Or I'm in prison and they just let me out for a little while because I'm, I'm suffering for the Lord. Now let me just make a distinction here. Suffering happens in our life because we live in a fallen world. So some people get disease and, and, and eventually we all die. And, and we have hardship, we have struggles and there's relational issues and marriage issues. Those, those are the effects of a fallen world, right? That's, that's part of being in a fallen world. And we all go through stuff. But what Paul is suffering is different from that. He's suffering something he's chosen to suffer because he's chosen to follow Jesus and it's gotten him thrown in jail. So if somebody were to come in here tonight and say, Hey, I just want to talk to you guys for a minute. And you didn't know who they were. Now, the, the church at Ephesus knew who Paul was. But if, they, if you didn't know who they were, and you're just like, whatever, what, what are you going to talk to me about? And then I stood up and said, Hey, by the way, this guy um, was in the Middle East serving the Lord and he was thrown in prison three times. You would probably listen, wouldn't you? I would listen. In fact, when I was in China, the first time I ever went to China, we met a guy. Um, the guy at the time who was our contact brought this Chinese guy in the room, and he said, I would like my friend to speak to your group. I'm like, well, that's cool, but who's your friend? And then he went on to tell us that his friend was a pastor, a house church pastor, and had been imprisoned in China three times. One of those times was his own wedding. It was not cool for them to meet in public, but this guy had a public Christian wedding, and the authorities were standing outside the house, when they were done with the wedding and he said, you're going to jail. The dude didn't get, even have a honeymoon night, right? What's up with that? So, so I'm like, I'm listening to this guy, right? You suffered for Jesus in so many ways. Um, so he got out like three days later, so it's okay. So what Paul is saying is, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. It's kind of like... I'm writing to you. And what he could be writing is, I'm suffering, I'm having this hard time and feel sorry for me. But what Paul is writing to them is to urge them to do something. It's to urge them to do something. So check out what he says. I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a sense of urgency or what that feels like. But here's just my example of a sense of urgency. I was, I was standing around Charlie a couple weeks ago when he remembered that he had a paper due. And I can't tell you how many times in college where I would wake up in the middle of the night and for some reason, something in me, the Holy Spirit, I don't know who, but said, you have a paper due tomorrow. And I would wake up in a cold sweat and there was a sense of urgency and run down to the library. And I'm not, why, why is the library not open at 2 in the morning? Don't they know I need to get books? The sense of urgency. There's so many things that create a sense of urgency in our life, right? And some of us are urgent over different things. Here's what Paul's saying is, I'm urging you. Urging you to what? Well, he moves on and, and tells us what he's urging us, urging us to. To walk in a 
manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and with all gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love, and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here's what Paul says. He's urging them specifically to do something, and that is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they've received. So all of us in here are Christ followers. And, and let me just say this tonight. I don't presume that everyone is a Christ follower in here. Some of you may be here and you were invited or you're just checking out this, this Jesus thing. So I don't presume. Some of you may be very religious and you come to church, but you don't follow Jesus. So I presume nothing. But for all of us who are Christ followers in here, what Paul is saying, and even to those of us who aren't, is he's urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they've received. Now, let me just make a distinction here because what Paul is not saying is live for Jesus that is not what Paul is saying he said really? I thought the whole New Testament was that live for Jesus that is not what Paul is saying actually this word walk is, uh, is, is a little Greek thing called the aorist infinitive which means this it means it's the scope of things so Paul is saying in the aorist if a word is in the Greek aorist tense that means it's the scope of things so what Paul is saying is your whole life should be this walk your life is this journey so walk your whole life so he's basically saying live your life in a manner worthy of the calling you've received but it's in the infinitive which means this it's, it's kind of like a noun verb it's kind of cool. Walking is the noun of your life. It's who you are. It's the verb of your life. It's what you do. And basically when you put all that together, here's what Paul is saying. Your whole life is to be walked not for Jesus. Catch this, especially those of us who've grown up in church. Your whole life is not meant to be walked for Jesus. It's meant to be walked with Jesus. Catch that? Not for Jesus, with Jesus. Because see, what happens is sometimes we get all amped up and we say, I want to walk for Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. And what Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Just walk with Jesus. It's not that hard, actually. In fact, if I'm going to hang out with you, I don't want to say, hey, I'm going to hang out with uh, Kevin. And uh, then I don't hang out with Kevin. I just talk a lot about Kevin. Or I do things for Kevin. What would be better is if I hung out with Kevin all the time. And as I walked places, people would meet Kevin because I'm walking with Kevin. I'm not walking for Kevin. I'm walking with Kevin. That's the distinction Paul is making. And so then he moves on from that saying, look, you're not walking for Jesus. You're walking with Jesus. It is a lifestyle of walking. When Jesus invited people to follow Him, He said, Take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and the last part is follow Me. It's an invitation to a relationship. Not an invitation to just live for Jesus. It's an invitation to walk with Jesus. That's way different. And if you just have this mentality that you're supposed to live for Jesus, that one word makes a difference. You will easily slip into a works mentality. You will easily slip into, I've got to do stuff for God. You'll easily slip into behavior modification. You'll easily slip into feeling bad when you mess up. But here's the deal. You've not been called to live for Jesus. You've been called to walk with Jesus. John 15, I am the vine. You are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. Nothing. That's what Paul is saying. But here's the interesting thing. The first thing that Paul says comes out of a life that's walking with Jesus is this word unity or community. Check out what he says. He's going to tell them that they should be eager to do something. I'm eager to do a lot of things. Uh, sometimes this is not what I'm eager to do uh, because I get in the flesh. But here's what Paul says. Look at verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, why? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to quickly deal with two things concerning fighting for community. I'll tell you what Paul says here. First, why we should fight for community. Why it's even important. Why it matters that we not be divisive. And then secondly, Paul's going to tell us how. Okay, So that's what he's about to do. Be eager to do this. 
I'm sure you're eager to do a lot of things. Paul wants you to be eager to, to fight for community. So how does that, or actually, why does that happen? Why should you fight for community? Here's what Paul says. First of all, because the calling you receive, which he talked about a second ago, is a calling that is one. It's one. Everyone say one. That's pretty good. Y'all are still with me. That's good. Uh, check out what he says here. Wow, I just went to chapter 1. I was like, that is not chapter 4. Um, <laughs> look at verse 4. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul's making this big case. He's almost being a little sarcastic. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father. So let me break this down for you for a second and, and just show you why it's important. Paul's saying that you've been called to one calling, one body. A body is not a body unless it's together. If for some reason you were to spontaneously combust, which would be weird, and you were everywhere, which would be a mess, and we would all leave. Um, but you would not be a body. You would be pieces everywhere. So for us to be one... Body means we have to be together, right? My arm over there or my leg over here does not constitute body. Um, one spirit. But then he goes down and says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He says one spirit and he also says one baptism. And let me bring these two things together. When he says baptism, he is not talking about the mode of believer's baptism. Sometimes uh, people argue about that. I basically believe what we believe is Baptist. I believe that immersion is the way that we do baptism. I believe it's scriptural. I believe it's biblical. Some people do it differently. That's that's cool, but I don't think it's right. So I think they're wrong. Um, but, but, but here's what Paul's saying. He's not talking about water baptism or sprinkling or, or hosing someone down, whatever people do. He's talking about baptism into the body through the Spirit. So he said there's one baptism. Now let me make this clarification because this is a nice little theological point. Sometimes people will tell you, as I was told, that there is salvation and then there is a second blessing, something that comes after salvation and you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a doctrine that kind of floats around out there. Maybe you've heard about it. The Bible doesn't talk about that at all. In fact, here's what the Bible says. When you become a believer, you get baptized into the body through the Spirit of God, and it's, you have all the Spirit of God that you will ever need. Now, every single day, I have to give myself back over to the Spirit, but I have all the Spirit I'm ever going to need. I don't need a second blessing. I don't need another experience. I have the Spirit of God. If I don't have the Spirit of God, I'm not a Christian. End of story. And so what Paul says is you've been baptized into one baptism by one Spirit. The Spirit of God that dwells in me and dwells in any believer sitting out here, and any believer that goes to this church or any believer in this city, is the same Spirit. So here's the question that begs to be asked. If the same Spirit dwells in all of us, then why can't we get along? Why are we divisive? Why do we talk about one another behind each other's backs? Why are we not eager to maintain unity? Because we've got the same spirit. This is a question that doesn't get asked a lot in our circles, but it gets asked a whole lot by people who aren't in our circles. Right? That's what Paul's going to say. Why should you fight for community? Because the calling you've been called to is one Lord, one baptism, one faith. It's one. It is one. But then he moves on and tells us another reason why. And it's actually because Jesus has given us uh, something so that we can be one. Check this out. 
This blew my mind when I started reading it and understood its context. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He held a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this gets really weird here for a second, but I'm going to explain it. Verse 9 says, In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He, uh, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that He might fill all things. Verse 11, and He gave to the apostles, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith. So here's the deal. We fight for unity because we've been called to oneness, but we also fight for unity because Christ has given spiritual gifts to make us one. I want you to see this. There's all this wordiness here, and sometimes you can get lost in the wordiness of the Scripture, but here's what Paul's saying. He uses this example, and um, basically he says, um, he, there's this kind of weird, this weird phrase here, and it says, He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, He gave gifts to men, then He ascended, and He also descended, and there's all this ascending and descending, and it sounds very tiring. Um, but basically what he's saying is that Jesus Christ offers us grace, and is it not that, He's not talking about salvation grace, He's talking about spiritual gifts. And the spiritual gifts he's talking about are, in verse um, 11, he says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So, there's three sets of spiritual gift lists in the scriptures. This is one of them. Those three sets are a little bit different, and I don't believe that any one of those sets is exhaustive. I think that there are spiritual gifts that God gives to people that are not in the Scriptures. I don't think Paul meant for them to be exhaustive, right? But Paul is talking here specifically about a certain set of gifts that have been given to the church to do a certain thing, and that is to equip us to be one. So, we should fight for unity because we've been called to oneness, but, but Jesus has given us the means whereby to be one. Now, let me just blow your minds here for a second. Um... We're about to get a new pastor, right? Uh, hopefully. Uh, it's going to be an awesome weekend. I encourage you to be here. If you're a member, I encourage you to come vote. You need to be involved in this process. College students are always like, I don't have a voice. Well, come and have a voice. You have an opportunity to have a voice. We're about to have a new pastor, possibly. We have many pastors who are here who have been doing an amazing job in, in the absence of a senior pastor. Sometimes our default setting as people who come to church and do church is... Uh, hello? <laughs> is um, is to basically default to letting the pastors and the ministers do the work in the ministry. And we come and we enjoy the benefits of it. Now, pretty much in a ministry like this, we have a lot of people doing a lot of different things. But did you know that in most North American churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work? And then they leave the rest of it up to the pastors. They're like the hired guns. They're the professionals, right? They're the guys who went to school to do this. So let them do it. And then we come and we complain about how they don't do it right. <laughs> right? So I'm just trying to be honest because I don't know what else to say. But here's the deal. What Paul says is he's given to us pastors and apostles and prophets and evangelists to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So he's given us these spiritual gifts in the body. And really, some people interpret this as he's given people to the body. He's given pastors to the body. He's given teachers to the body. People who can break open the Word and explain it. He's given evangelists to the body. People who will share the gospel but also equip you to share the gospel. Kelly Green. Hello, anyone? Um, he has given missionaries to the body who will encourage people to be missional and go for the glory of God. And so all of these people with these gift sets are not to do the ministry by themselves. They're to equip you to do the ministry. They're to equip you to do the ministry. And so for you to sit back, and this is very important for us, 
for you to sit back and have the normal North American church member attitude that everyone is here to serve me is absolutely unbiblical. It is absolutely unbiblical. You are a minister. If you are a Christ follower, you are a minister. And you have a specific mission field that God has called you to. And Ted's job and our new pastor's job and anyone else's job who is in the ministry as a vocation is to equip you to do your ministry the best that you can. And to promote unity. Check this out. I never saw this before I really started studying, but here's what it says. It says that these people, these spiritual gifted people, uh, shepherds and evangelists and all that, are also to build up the body of Christ until we attain unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So these people, these, these pastors, so to speak, have been given to us so that we can be one. But check this out. Why else should we fight for the faith and fight for unity, fight for community? Because when we don't, next thing is it leads to our ruin. Check out um, what it goes on and says. It leads to our ruin in a couple different ways. He says this. He says um, that we should reach mature manhood, the measure of stature and the fullness of Christ. So that we, verse fourteen, so we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine and every human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says. If we don't unify, if we don't come together and fight for community, if we're divisive and we're split, then it will ruin us. It'll, it'll ruin us. And can I tell you, I, I don't know, maybe Ted can help me out with this number. I didn't do my research before this, but there are thousands of Southern Baptist churches that close their doors every year in the United States because they are not unified. They have no vision, they have no passion, they have no purpose. They fight about worship styles and carpet color. They are not unified. And they should close their doors. They should close their doors because they are not about the kingdom. But when we don't unify, it ruins us. How does it ruin us? First of all, it promotes immaturity. Check out what he said. He says, until you reach mature manhood. Well, look what he says here. He says, until you reach mature manhood, until you unify as a body or as a people or as a college ministry, uh, we will be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. So it promotes immaturity. But it also promotes doctrinal error. When I'm not mature, here's what Paul is saying. If you're not mature and you're not unified as a body, that means you're not mature then doctrinal error will seep in because you're disunified and you're not on the same page. And you'll be children. Now, I have a three-year-old, and soon we will have Jane. We don't know how old she'll be. She won't be any older than two. And um, Ava is terrified. Terrified of the beach. That's not a cool thing because we live in Florida, right? We're like surrounded by beach, right? If you go to the right or the left or south, you're you are hitting beach, and she's scared of it. Uh, when my brother was a kid, he's nine years older than me, he was scared of grass, so that's a little worse. <laughs> my mom would like put him in the yard, he's like, ah! He's like, okay, concrete. I was scared of, I was scared of flies, okay? So we, I remember going to Disney World when I was like three, and like I'm like, mom, there's a fly on me, and I'm like freaking out. My parents are like, stop screaming, people think we're beating you. Okay, <laughs> but Ava is terrified of beaches, and there was um, this really awesome couple in our church here, Bell Shoals, that offered Rachel and I their condo back in August so we could go have a vacation together. Um, we, we we raise all of our own support for our ministry. We don't make a lot of money. Uh, vacations are usually not something that we get to do a lot. And someone said, "Here's our timeshare. Here's some money to go eat. Go and have a break." And we we're like, "Thank you, 
Jesus. So we went to uh, Myrtle Beach, and um, we did not discover that Ava did not like beaches until we get to Myrtle Beach. And we're like all geared up to go to the beach, and we got suntan lotion on and all this stuff. Not suntan lotion, sunblock. And uh, we go to the beach, and she's standing there, and she's like moaning and wailing. And I'm like, what is, people are looking at us, and I'm like, what is wrong with you, child? You know, I had one of those dad moments like, get it together. We're at the beach. You're supposed to have fun. So we didn't hang out at the beach. We hung out in our room and we went and got ice cream every day and stuff. It was still fun. But if I were to put Ava as a little three-year-old in the ocean and leave her, I would never do that. That would be ridiculous. Because she would just be tossed to and fro by every wave and she would eventually drown. It would be horrible and it would just be bad. Here's what Paul is saying. Until you're mature... Until you're unified, until you're one, you will, you will continue to be like children. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If you're not mature in Christ, and if you're not unified, you will, you will continue to be a child. And just like if I put my three-year-old in the ocean, she would be just tossed to and fro. Here's what happens. When we are children in our faith, we are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Doctrinal error seeps in. And I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen actually at a church that I knew. A friend of mine was a pastor at a church. He was a youth pastor. The church was not unified. They were not unified in vision or purpose. They fought about things. They talked about one another behind their back. Their staff was not unified. And what happened is one piece of them broke off and started another church that slipped into crazy doctrinal error. Like teaching that there were other ways to get to God, embracing other faiths because they wanted to reach people. And these are people that at one time would have said, yeah, we believe Jesus is the way. Because they weren't unified and that's where it started. That's what Paul says. You will seep into doctrinal error. You will not have orthodoxy anymore. And you can't be orthodoxy and have orthopraxy. So he continues on um, and he says, here's how you fight for the faith. Check out, um, go to verse 17. He's going to tell us how to fight for the faith. Now check this out. Verse 17 says this. Now I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. For they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and you were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of your life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So here's what Paul says. He says, if you want to fight for community, here's how you have to do it. And it's really one word. And I think it's going to be on the screen. It's repentance. Here's what repentance is. A biblical definition of repentance. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of action. To even come to Jesus, you have to repent. There's a lot of people who said, yeah, I follow Jesus, but there's no repentance in their life. They didn't follow Jesus. You have to have a change of head, mind, that has a change of heart that leads to a change of action. And all three of those things are right here in the text. Here's what Paul says. Check it out. He says um, in verse 17, or actually verse 18, he says, They were darkened in their understanding, their minds. They were alienated from the life of God due to their hardness of heart. And they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, their life. Do you see those three things? So here's what Paul says. He's talking to to the church at Ephesus and he's basically saying this is who you used to be and he would say the same thing to us all of us in this room who are Christ followers used to be this you had a hard heart 
you practice every kind of impurity, you look for opportunities to practice impurity. You, some of you remember when you weren't a Christ follower. It's not been very long. You were looking for opportunities to practice impurity. You got up in the morning going, how can I sin? You didn't say it like that, but that's how you lived. And so what Paul says is that's not who you are. So repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of action. And it's summed up in this, understanding who you are and whose you are. So Paul will say this. He says repent. So it includes something. Go to the next slide. It includes um, putting off something. Check out what he says here um, in the text. He says this in... um, Verse 22. Put off your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life. So there was a way in which you used to live, and you got to take that off now. It was full of deceit. And then verse 23, he says this. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It starts with your mind. And put on the new self, which was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says you've got to take something off. It's like... The only way I know how to do it is a pretty pretty nasty illustration, but here we go. Um, I'm just full of nasty illustrations tonight. Um, a couple weeks ago, actually it was a couple months ago, it was Ava's birthday, and she got very sick on her birthday. And Rachel took her to the zoo, and I was working. I called Rachel, and uh, actually she called me. And I answered the phone, and she didn't say hello. She didn't say, what are you doing? I hear Ava screaming in the background, and so I'm like, what is going on? And Rachel just tells me with much excitement in her voice, I have uh, vomit all over me. So I'm like, great. So Ava had gotten sick and thrown up all over all over her. So I'm sitting at the house waiting for them to get home, thinking about how I can comfort her, help her. And she walks in, and she just hands me Ava, and she's like, i got to go change. I mean, literally, she was covered. It was disgusting, right? I'm like, yes, you do need to go change. <laughs> now. <laughs> and we need to throw your clothes away. And so she took, she took those clothes off and put on clean clothes. That is what Paul is saying. You used to wear these clothes that were full of deceit and nastiness and sin, and now what you can do is take those off. Jesus has given us the ability to take that off and put on His righteousness. Put on something. But here's where repentance takes place. We have to turn from something, but we also have to turn to something. And that's what Paul is saying. A lot of times when we repent, we turn from something, but if we don't turn to something, we turn back to the something we turned from in the first place. Follow me? So here's what Paul will say. He says, turn from that, because that's not who you are anymore. Turn to this. Look at verse 25. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So basically he says this. It is not a sin to be angry. It is a sin to let the sun go down on your anger. So deal with issues. Deal with issues. Then he goes on and says this. Um, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may give something to share with anyone in need. Some people think that there was actually a thief in their presence, and Paul knew that. There was a thief at the church that was stealing things from people, stealing from the church, and he called him out. Then he goes on and says this, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, when we hear corrupting talk, we automatically think... Um, filthy language, cursing, gossip, all of that is under corrupting talk. All of that is under corrupting talk. So Paul says, stop it and do something else. Have conversation, have talk that builds people up. But you know what he also would put under corrupting talk? Not just filthy language and gossip and all that stuff. Here's what else falls under corrupting talk. is empty and vain conversation. Empty and vain conversation. I had a friend 
who uh, was a, a missionary in China. Before he went to China, he fasted for 40 days. And when he got back, I was talking to him about his fast because um, I was about to start a similar fast, not a full food fast, but something similar. And I was just asking him, like, man, what do you go through? What is it like? And he said, at about day 10, I became very tired of empty and vain conversation. And he said, I realized how many conversations I have and other people have that are pointless and full of vanity. He said, because I was so needy for God... I didn't want to talk to anybody else who would not encourage me to, to love God more. If it was just going to be empty conversation, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. That's what Paul is saying. Corrupting talk is not just the absence, or not just having filthy language and all that stuff. To stop having filthy language but not replace it with anything is still corrupting talk. If I get with my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I get with them and I have the opportunity to be with them, I should always be encouraging them and building them up and saying, here's what God's doing, here's what's going on in my life, and encourage them and build them up. That's what Paul says. He also says, moving on, he says um, not only to deal with corrupt talk in your life, um, but check out the next thing he says here. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and check this out, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. We talked about this a little bit during the Relate series, but... Um, Forgiveness in a relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, a friendship, a dating relationship, but also in the body of Christ. Now catch this. Don't check out on me. Forgiveness is the oil that makes this thing go. Because I'm a messed up person, and you're a messed up person, and we're all messed up people. And at some point, if you hang out with me long enough, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to disappoint you, and it's not going to be good. So I need a lot of forgiveness, right? I, ask my wife. I need a lot of forgiveness. You need a lot of forgiveness. We all need a lot of forgiveness. But what we tend to do is hold forgiveness. And here's what Paul says. Forgive in such a way that you're forgiving the same way that Christ Jesus forgave you. How did Christ Jesus forgive us? Deeply. Not only did He forgive us deeply, but He reconciled us to Himself. So forgiveness, biblical, Christ-centered forgiveness is this. I forgive you, and I want to work towards reconciliation with you. It is not just saying to someone, oh, it's okay, and walking away. In fact, my wife and I, Rachel and I, we have promised to never say that when we're fighting. And we fight, yes, we fight, okay? When we fight, we promise never to do a couple things. Let the sun go down on our fight, we, we fix it. We settle it. And we also promise never to say to one another, uh, no, it's fine, it's okay. Because that is not forgiveness. To say it is okay is simply a way for me to brush it under the carpet. I need to look her in the eye and I need to say, I choose to forgive you. Or she needs to look me in the eye and say, I choose to forgive you. That is forgiveness because that is what Christ did. He chose to forgive us. Now let me get really practical here for a second. And then we're done. If, if you're in here and you have a problem with someone, here's a couple practical things. And these are going to be on the screen. You can throw them up there. Um, if you have a problem with someone, number one, um, they're not up there yet. Uh, number one, you, you need to, and this isn't any kind of order. I'm out of order, but you need to go to that person face to face. You need to go to them face to face. Why do I say go to them face to face? If you don't go to someone face to face, here's where you go. You go to somebody else. And then that somebody else goes to somebody else. Ever been there? 
And you know what this does. It creates division. If you have a problem with anybody, or you think that someone has a problem with you, if I catch wind that someone has a problem with me, I go to them. I go immediately to them. You go to them face to face. That is the biblical way to deal with things. You go to them, you go to your brother, you go to your sister, and you make reconciliation with them. And if you need forgiveness, you ask them for forgiveness. If they need forgiveness from you, you give them forgiveness. You go to them face to face. Not on email, not on Facebook. Face to face. Follow me? Second thing, practical thing, um, realize you have been saved from sin to a body. So that means this, everything that you do not only affects you, it affects the whole body. It affects everybody. Every decision you make, every word you say affects everybody in the body. Uh, Also, some practical things, allow your mouth to build up, not tear down. Um, But also, number three, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is huge, right? I'm around college students enough and high school students to know that many times our yes is not our yes and our no is not our no. Let your speech be full of purity. To have impure speech is not just to talk bad about someone or tell dirty jokes or to curse a lot. Impure speech is also when you say you're going to do something and you don't do it. You make yourself to be a liar. You make yourself to be a liar. Have pure speech because that will build up the unity of the body. That's what Paul says. Don't lie to one another anymore. Tell the truth and live in love. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, If you have a problem, go to someone face to face. Next thing, practically, talking about fighting for community. Date with unity of this body in mind. What do I mean by that? You probably know what I mean by that, but I've seen plenty of people in other churches that will date one another, and then when they date, they break up, and then guess what happens? It gets nasty, right? People have to choose sides. People are caught in the middle, and it is just a divisive thing. So I know there's people in here dating, and we've talked about dating, so I'm not going to harp on that, but date with unity of the body, specifically this body, in mind. Because if you don't do it in a way that's godly, it can create division down the road, and you are actually fighting against community. Does that make sense? Date with unity in mind. Date with unity in mind. And then, last couple things. Do not become a Pharisee. Here's what I mean by that. Is um, When you get to a point in your spiritual walk where you feel like you're above people, and you actually begin to judge them, and you actually begin to talk about them behind their back, that's a Pharisee. Jesus said, take the big tree out of your eye before you take the speck of dust out of someone else's eye. We're not as great as we think we are. And then the last thing he says is, forgive quickly. Forgive very quickly. Why is it so important that we fight for community? Because, just honestly, I believe that Jesus is doing some pretty cool things in this ministry. For Jane is an example of that. In the past two years, this ministry has grown. It's grown by people. It's grown by depth. It's grown. And that's just a God thing. That's not because of anybody or anyone's efforts. It's just, I mean, we've worked hard, but God has just blessed the efforts. What Satan would want more than anything is to divide us at this point. Because I feel like this college ministry is on, on the verge of some very great things. You're all gifted people. You've got great things in store for you, and what God would love, what what Satan would love to do is to divide us over petty things and make our effectiveness very low. And you can't let that happen. You and I have to fight for community. And where Paul says it starts is with you.
That you would be patient. That you would be kind. That you would forgive quickly. That you would put on the righteousness of Christ and treat other people the way you would want to be treated. It starts with you. It doesn't start with the other person. Typically, I read a text like this in the Bible and I go, Oh, somebody or somebody or somebody. No, no, no. It starts with me. It starts with me being that person. And if everyone is that person, then guess what? It works out pretty well. Let me pray for you guys and Charlie's going to come back up and lead us in some worship. Just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, um, if you would say that um, that maybe there is, is someone that you, um, you have not been completely unified with, it could be somebody in this room, it could be somebody who's not here, Maybe even somebody you have bitterness in your heart towards. You have been withholding forgiveness from maybe this person. And you know that God is calling you to reach out to that person and seek reconciliation. For the good of the body. If you would say, man, I'm, I'm in that boat tonight and I need, um, I just want you to pray for me. Would you just lift your hand up and, and, um, and just put it back down? Just lift your hand up and... You can put it back down when you're done. Man, a lot of folks. What that tells me is is that what I just said is very true, that Satan would love to divide us. If there's that many people dealing with some kind of disunity with somebody, either in this room or not in this room, Satan would love to divide us. And that's why Paul said we have to fight. So I'm going to pray for you. Maybe um, as Charlie leads us after I pray, we're going to sing some more. Uh, Maybe you would just like to go get with someone that you need to have some reconciliation with and pray with them if that person's in this room. Maybe you just want to go and and pray with a brother or sister um, that you can have the strength to go to the person you need to go to. Um, But whatever it is God would would lead you to do, I'm going to ask you to do it. And uh, let me pray for us, and then Charlie's going to lead us in a couple more songs. Father, uh, thank You for Your Word. Uh, Thank You um, that so many years ago the Apostle Paul wrote some very specific words that are still so true today. It blows my mind that we still deal with the same things today. So God, I pray that you You would help us to fight for community, that we'd have the same passion for unity and community that Paul had and that ultimately You have. And that we would be urgent and eager to fight for the community of the body of Christ. And God, I pray if there's anybody in here who needs to deal with an issue tonight, maybe even another person in this room, that they would just go to them and work it out face to face. Because your your bride, your body is worth it. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I ask you to stand up. We're going to sing some more. If you need to pray with someone, feel free to do that.